Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for May 3rd, 2018, the live in St. Louis edition. We, we are... We're on stage at a jam-packed Sheldon Concert Hall in downtown St. Louis along the banks of the Mississippi River. We are here to bridge east and west, to knit the country back together. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. To my immediate left is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. And to her left is John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. And before we start, I just want to say I've never um, been to St. Louis, and so today was the first chance, but St. Louis is, is oddly a cradle of plotses, which is that <laughs> my, my grandmother, Helen Abrams, grew up here. She went to University City High School, and she, where she sat next to, she, was, she sat next to in homeroom, Tennessee Williams was her homeroom seatmate. Then known as Tom Williams. Tom Williams, who was very quiet. David called his mom and found all the yes. stuff, or reacquainted himself with it today. And my, my great-great-grandfather was the chief rabbi of St. Louis, and there's a photo in my parents have of his funeral where there are thousands of your ancestors flocking <laughs> the streets, which it probably around, I don't know, around in the teens, 19-teens. Anyway, so it's good, to, it's good to come home. Thank you for having us. <laughs> On this week's GabFest, 49 questions. We've got 49 answers. We will dig into the latest drama in the Russia investigation, the leak of the questions that Robert Mueller wants to ask the president. Then, native son Jason Kander, a politician and voting right activist, will he'll join us to forecast the 2018 election and the challenges that Democrats face in turning out voters and actually enabling them to vote. Then we came to Missouri expecting to find the wholesome decency of middle America, (laughs) the basic values that we have lost touch with in Washington, D.C., New York, and New Haven. Instead, you guys are embroiled in a sex scandal that makes even us lascivious (laughs) East Coasters blush. We are going to wade into the Greitens mess and bathe in it. And then consider the state of the modern political sex scandal. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. Of course, we couldn't get through a week without Mueller bombshells. This week brought us two of them. First, the New York Times published a list of 49 questions that Mueller's team would like to ask the president, a list that was compiled, apparently, by Mueller's lawyers while they were in conversation with... Uh, with, by Trump's lawyers, excuse me, while they were in conversations with Mueller's team and seemingly leaked by someone in the president's circle... 
The Washington Post followed this up with news that Mueller's team had raised the possibility of subpoenaing the president if he didn't testify. So um, before we get to the substance of this and get to some Basilonian wisdom here, let us, we're going to play a quick game with the 49 questions. I'm going to read you three questions. Two are from the list. One is made up. See if you can guess the fake one. All right? So this might be... This is hard. This is hard. So don't respond. I'm going to read you three, and then you'll get a chance to vote. So the first question that comes from that list is, why did you discuss James Comey with Russian diplomats on May 10th, 2017? That's number one question. Second question is, what discussions did you have during the campaign regarding Russian sanctions? The third question was, how was the decision made to fire Mr. Flynn on February 13th, 2017? So, if you think the first question, which is why did you discuss James coming with Russian diplomats on May 10th, 2017, is fake, please indicate that with applause. If you think the second question, what discussions did you have during the campaign regarding Russian sanctions, was fake, please indicate that with applause. And if you think the third question, how was the decision made to fire Mr. Flynn on February 13th, 2017, if you think that's fake, please indicate. Do you guys know the answer? John thinks it's two. John thinks number two is fake. What do you think, Emily? I have no idea, honestly. (laughs) The fake question is number one. So, reread that again. What was it again? Why did you discuss James Comey with Russian diplomats on May 10th, 2017? Oh. Yeah, yeah. but he really... Oh, why No, bother? he never discussed anything with Russia. On which no, no, day? he did discuss the firing, right? With, Remember? But that was, it was okay. the day after. It wasn't May 10th, yeah, yeah. I don't think. I, okay. Yeah, never mind. Anyway. <laughs> congratulations if you got the, this, that right. So, Emily, where did this list of questions come from? That list that you made up? No. Um... <laughs> So, right, who leaked this list? Who had an incentive to leak this list? The the Times article says that it was compiled probably mostly by Jay Sekulow on the president's team from uh, the kinds of questions or subject matters that Trump's, um, that Mueller's people had had been saying to him or reading to him, and then that it was leaked by someone else outside the legal team. So that could be John Dowd, um, Trump's former lawyer, who might want to convince the president not to sit for this interview um, by having the whole world say, don't sit for this interview. This is full of minefields for you. You're better off pleading the fifth, which was what Jeffrey Tubin's take was today, and I'm sure lots of other lawyers. So that's one possibility. Because Trump seems to constantly check in with lots of people about what he should do. You could also imagine someone else um, in his circle, one of his friends, trying to dissuade him or just getting excited about having this big piece of information. John, what, why do you think it was leaked? What, what does getting it out in public do for Trump or for some whatever constituency might have leaked it? Jeffrey Tubin's argument, it seems to me, is the most plausible. We know that there's a pattern in people trying to convince the president of things who've lost the discussion inside the room. We've seen that on personnel matters, policy matters. We've seen it in all, all kinds of things. And in this case, we know there's an ongoing debate about whether he should attack Mueller, whether he should testify or not, and what the scope of it should be. So it feels like this could be. And we also, his lawyer, Ty Cobb, stepped down the 
So that's another person who I think you have to put if you were trying to figure out. I mean, he obviously left because it wasn't going in whatever direction he wanted it to go in. So I think that's the most plausible explanation. But so the thing that they want to get him to do is to not test him. Is the idea that you get these questions out there, they are so broad and so damaging that therefore the president has no choice but to not testify? Right. There's a secondary version, which is you get them out and then the president says, oh, it's a trap. In other words, he's in on it. It's not to convince him of something. It's to create... A, it's actually not unlike what Netanyahu did with the Iranian... Um, stick with me here for a minute. With the Iranian... With the, the, Iranian, the Iranian nuclear theater? deal, which, yeah. is, which, which it wasn't to convince the president that, uh, about what Iran was up to. It was to provide public cover. So in this case, the secondary argument could be not to convince him but for him to say, look, it's a trap, and look at all these questions, and he, of course, It'll take it. me too long. I'm too busy. Right, or, or, or it's outside the scope, right. right? Or the things he's actually been tweeting about uh, collusion and obstruction. Um, to, right, and he needs, into. since he had said he wanted to sit for the interview, he needs a reason not to do it. He needs an exactly. excuse. To, I mean, exactly. does, Emily, as, as you look at it as a, as a lawyer, or pseudo-lawyer, as I like to say, as a self, as a squad disant lawyer, lawyer. that no one should ever hire. Uh, what st- what stands out? I mean, does it feel like these are overbroad? Oh my goodness, how how massively Mueller's reached? I mean, wh- one thing that no. struck me was like, there's no Stormy Daniels questions. There's not really much any questions about his finances in it. So it doesn't appear to be that broad. But but do you think, as a lawyer, does it feel very broad to you? No, I mean, I think it seemed to be covering the. Ba- I mean, the fact that there are 49 questions reflects the. Um, complex and tangled web that ha- and the many tentacles that are um, out there, forgive that mixed metaphor, from spiders to octopuses or squids or whatever, right? Like, I mean, at this point, we would expect him to both be talking about Comey's firing and, you know, whether he had pressured Sessions to resign and Manafort's role and Flynn's resi- Flynn leaving. There, there are these, um, like... These parts of this investigation, parts of this story that we're familiar with, and there was almost nothing that was news except for the question about Manafort and this this issue of whether he had reached out to the Russians for help in the campaign. That was like the single thing that seemed like a new piece of information, right? So it didn't seem to be overreaching to me. And also these were extrapolations from areas so you got to figure it's more, it's more than 49, and also there's some that are going to be quite specific uh, that would be surprising to all of us based on what they know from other interviews they've done. So can I ask a question about the negotiation? So today, Rudy Giuliani, who's now involved in Trump's legal team, um, <laughs> not a pseudo-lawyer. Uh, is there anyone in this room who is not one of Trump's lawyers? <laughs> Giuliani said... That they were, he he would agree to a couple of hours, narrow set of questions. Um, that's it. So, what's the next play here? You know, who? It's a game of chicken. Does you know, Mueller has the power to threaten a subpoena that would be litigated, presumably, if Trump refused to obey the subpoena. Bill Clinton kind of backed down, agreed to do the deposition in the end. Two to three hours doesn't seem to be to be nearly enough time to get into all the specifics. Um, does Mueller come back and take it? And what does he do about agreeing to the parameters beforehand, which obviously limits the scope and utility of the interview? But, I mean, I thought that, again, this is going back to the piece that Jeff Tubin wrote. I thought that Tubin's piece was pretty persuasive, where he argues that what this has done is this has set up Trump to kind of, even if he's forced by subpoena to testify, to take the fifth 
not to, to, and he can say, I'm not taking it because of self-incrimination, because there's no crime here. I'm taking it because this investigation is out of hand, and, and this is just too much distraction from the work of right. the presidency. And he will get a ton of Republican support if he does that. I think he's in a fine position never to have to answer any of these questions. Maybe they'll it's, answer them in writing at some point. but that Never will depend on what happens in the 2018 election, right? But, how, why, why does that depend on because if the Democrats take either the House or the Senate and they're able to start impeachment proceedings and right, yeah. that would change. But I mean, maybe not because they're not going to have, you know, an impeachment proof majority. But that would change. I think can, that would change the politics. Do you think well, that Mueller? Can I just say we're talking about subpoenaing the president, by the way? It's like when, sometimes the distance that we've traveled in this needs to be. And what, what strikes me is that the president has said, well, there's no collusion, and therefore there couldn't have been any obstruction. We should remember that when he said he wanted to talk to Mueller, it was the day after James Comey had testified, and he said he wanted to testify not because he thought he was guilty, but because he wanted to show up Comey, who he said was a liar, and that he was anxious to tell his side of the story. So it wasn't for legal reasons. It was, And, and in other words, it also wasn't tied to anything. It was basically outside of the legal system and oh it's nice there's a special counsel I can go tell this story to so that's now out the window and also how far we've come on the collusion question which I mean not only did the president's son have a meeting with somebody who was advertised as a government lawyer from the Russians who had dirt on Hillary Clinton but there was a period where to suggest to anyone in the Trump campaign that anyone had met with any Russian was considered such an insult to even ask that question that uh, Don Jr. on television, Mike Pence, um, Kellyanne Conway, all said it was outrageous to even suggest it. Now we're like, we're so much further down the football field because now it's sort of like, oh, we're sure there were meetings, but whatever, they, weren't, they didn't mean anything. There was a time when even suggesting that there had been a meeting was a, a hugely offensive thing to suggest. Can I add one more thing to the like, let's notice where we are? Every news report about why Trump should not sit for this deposition talks about how he regularly fabricates and exaggerates and um, goes off on tangents that won't help him in a legal setting, and we're all just sort of, like, not along. But that's also not normal entirely. Although, John, I mean, you, you use the metaphor of a football field that we're further down the football field. I mean, that does imply... That implies that there's a the goal or a destination that might be achieved. I, I guess I'm... I'm concerned about that. I, don't, I, I think what, what to me is striking is that we've had so much evidence. There's so much evidence that the president is a liar. There's so much evidence that, that people on his team met with Russians, that there was a huge efforts to cover up, that there was obstruction of justice on various factors. And yet the public opinion about this and then the, the political opinion within the legislature, within Congress, has not changed very much at all. And so, the, it's, so there's a huge amount of information that's been put forward, and yet very little actual change in politics of it. I mean, part of it is our tribalism at the moment. Um, part of it is also, I think that some people might just be like, you know, wake me when this gets to a moment where a thing is happening, and it's just, and you know, when Mueller does his report. <clears throat> or when the interview happens and we find out what the answer is, that to follow the bouncing ball, and good God, the ball has been bouncing like it, it's like a Super Bowl. Um, you know, it's in the kitchen and it hits the colander and then it's out into the, into the living room and then the cat's under the bed. 
and that's just between like when I start the show at seven and when it's off the air at nine. Uh, mm. And we haven't had the smoking gun evidence, and we are kind of primed to expect it. One of the things that struck me as a non-lawyer about the quest- about these questions is there was very little of the what I would call like the clue kinds of questions. There was very little of the you know after you know after you shot the pistol, where did you leave it? There was very it was very sort of general, how did you feel about shooting the pistol kinds of questions. What's up with that? Tell us about your feelings is about criminal intent, right? Yeah. To make the obstruction charge, you need to have corrupt intent. And so that's why... Now, it's, one would imagine it would be easy to say I had only in my heart and soul and mind my feelings of rage at how Jim Comey had publicized that um, investigation of Hillary Clinton's emails. That was just great. But the fact is that the, the Trump has given contradictory statements about that. And so part of what you're doing is matching up this claimed state of mind with how you've already presented yourself and catching someone in contradiction. Exactly. And also he's got testimony of all these other people who are under oath. And so if he says, what did you say on Tuesday about this? And he says, I didn't say anything. So you didn't say this? Well, I did say that. But you were... And then now you're... Now, you know, I mean, that would be like if you were doing an interview, you know, you order it in such a way you don't give the game away at the beginning. Right. Um, and also, I think there are paths that these questions could lead yeah. down that are that are more of the clue type um, question. What do we make of the hiring of the new lawyer? Um, Williams Flood. and Con- It's a Flood. great name. Yeah. Emmett Flood, Williams and Connolly, storied Washington law firm, helped, uh, was on the Clinton impeachment defense team, which is either. Well, they got. Re- yeah, go, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, no, they got rid of Ty Cobb, who has an even better name. Yeah. So Emmett Flood seems like, a, like that's a B-plus name next to Ty Cobb. Yeah. Um, I thought this... Does he have a mustache? I thought this quote from the Washington Post piece talking about Emmett Flood was, um, was interesting. Who do you want on your side if Mueller decides to subpoena the president? You want to have your wartime conciliary. Emmett is a quintessential wartime conciliary. So if you Google the word consigliere, <laughs> any of you who There's have not watched the Godfather, anybody who's not watched up? the Godfather, the picture of Robert Duvall comes up and it says consigliere, an advisor, <laughs> an advisor, comma, especially to a crime boss. <laughs> so, uh, so that just seems to be a bad word choice. Uh, <laughs> Trump is ready for. So he went along with Ty Cobb and John Dowd's more placating approach, sort of right. the way he went along with like Rex Tillerson and, and Mas- McMaster, a more kind of conciliatory, um, establishmentarian cabinet. And now it's like that didn't work. They told me it was going to be over by Thanksgiving. They told me it was going to be over by Christmas. Like yeah. here we are in May and. Uh, maybe I'm in jeopardy, and it's time to take the gloves off. That's what, I mean, Flood plus Giuliani certainly suggests that. Right. All right, we're going to leave that topic there. <laughs> Slate Plus members, you get an extra segment with this podcast and with other Slate podcasts. Today's Slate Plus segment is going to be a and a with the audience here at our live show in St. Louis. For just $35, you can get a membership in Slate Plus. Are you Slate Plus members? Any Slate Plus members here today? They, they look and sound very happy. So you should go to slate.com slash gabfestplus to join them and become a member. 
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now, we would like to welcome a special guest, Mr. Jason Kander. So, Jason, I don't need to tell you this, but I'll tell the GapFest listeners at home. Jason, of course, was Secretary of State of, of Missouri. He was your very own Rex Tillerson, I guess. He, he narrowly let lost the, let a the Senate race. I made a face. <laughs> he narrowly lost a Senate race in 2016 to Roy Blunt. He ran, of course, way ahead of Hillary Clinton then. He's a lawyer. He's an Army veteran. He's the founder of Let America Vote. He... His book is called Outside the Wire, 10 Lessons I've Learned in Everyday Courage. Also, his birthday is on Friday. So, welcome to the GapFest. There's a happy birthday sign out there. That's so nice. That's so sweet. Somebody, Jason, I don't know if you got them. Someone brought birthday cupcakes. Did you get the... Yeah, I wonder if it's the same person. Maybe you have two fans. No, no, she's right here. All right. So we're here to have a conversation about voting rights and voting restrictions and about democratic prospects in 2018. But before we get to that, before we get to that, we've got a challenge for our guest. So as, as some of you know... Uh, Just some of you. Some of you know, Jason famously assembled his army rifle blindfolded for commercial. <laughs> and I think there may be, we may be able to see that behind us. But we represent, we're here, we're, again, we're coastal elites. We don't assemble guns on the East Coast. That's not what we do. So um, where I come from, the most important assembly is not your rifle. It's Ikea furniture. So, Jason, can you join me over here, please? You're going to get, you get a quick look at those instructions. I've preloaded the screws for you. Do you want the blindfold? Do you want a blindfold? No, I, can't, I can't do this when I can see. All right, we're going to give you, we're going to give you, we're going to give you a minute. Can I have Double ass. You cannot have somebody help. You get what you, if everyone knows the normal process of assembling Ikea furniture. Yeah. You have a kid. If someone's yelling at you, your wife is yelling at you. And is very disappointed. My wife does, so it's like a two-person job, but all right. Let's do it. All right, so, so we're going to give, John, do you have the a feminist timer? Excuse. Yeah, and what's, how much uh, time? We got we to gotta get, uh, we got to get, we need, we, need no, we need sound of assembling here. You know what? You know what? I'll take the blindfold because that would be less embarrassing. Right. Yeah. Nice. Nice. <laughs> This is a brave man. All right, you can have two minutes. Two minutes? All right, just one minute. John? Yeah, all right, am I, are we starting? On your mark, set, go. All right. You're doing well. You're doing well. You're making progress. You're making progress. 
Okay, and as an aside, for you podcast listeners at home, here's an abridged version of this IKEA adventure. Yeah! Beautifully done. <laughs> That's definitely the hardest we've ever made a guest work. IKEA furniture is hard. Yeah. Like when you can see. And just for, just for our radio audience, uh, what he put together was a 12-piece dinette set. Uh, <laughs> and then he uh, set the table afterward. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Yeah. Yep. So, Jason, when you look at the, the generic uh, ballot, the advantage the Democrats had been, had had, earlier this year was 13 points. It's now down to about four points. Most election, election experts think that they need at least seven points, maybe even as much as 11 to take the House. Why do you think it is squeezed over the last few months? If you're going to talk about metrics, the kind of things I look at is what there's now 40 uh, like legislative races across the country now that uh, have flipped uh, from, uh, from Republican to Democratic. There's races, sure, uh, there's... There's races like in Arizona where obviously, um, you know, there was not a victory for the Democratic side, but it was really close. You look at Connor Lamb's race. I remind people all the time, Democrats didn't actually field a candidate in that district in 2016. And then Connor Lamb won it. I've been in 39 states now uh, since Trump took office, speaking to Democratic groups. And I, I mean, the energy out there is real. I mean, raise your hand if either you or somebody you know personally has gotten involved in politics for the first time in their lives since Trump took office. Make noise. Don't raise your hand. Make make noise. Thank you. So that's that's real. I mean, and, and that's the kind of metric that I pay attention to. And what I tell people all the time, though, is that, like, when you talk about a quote, unquote, blue wave, it's important to remember that's not a weather event. Like, it ain't. It ain't like you could describe it like a meteorologist, like there's a front of blue, you know, political energy coming from the West. No, it is a, it is a, a human-made event. It is you go out and you do the work, you knock on the doors, and that's how it happens. So we have a lot of execution left to do to make that happen. One of the challenges the party is going through and battling, and you see it on the front lines everywhere, but in these individual states and where there are primaries is there is a tussle in the party for what the message is going to be, who the messengers are going to be. Mm-hmm. Give us your assessment of the state of that. Is that a big argument, a little argument, who's winning, uh, or is it just a mild little intramural f- fight that'll be taken care of? So I, on the ground, that's not the conversation that I hear. Like somebody will say to me, you know, my neighbor uh, called me and said, hey, we live in a really red congressional district. This may be they're talking about the Trump care debate. And they'd say, but we're going to go and we're going to challenge our representative on health care. We're going to demand answers. Do you want to go with us? And ever since then, I've been knocking on doors. I've been making calls. That's it's Americans bringing other Americans out. And and so I think that's much more what's going on on the ground. And that makes me really optimistic because the most effective movements in the history of the country are the ones that started everywhere else and went to Washington rather than the ones that started in Washington and went out. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. So we have become accustomed to hearing about a number of efforts that make it harder for people to vote. Voter ID laws and gerrymandering and um, making it easier to purge voter from, voters from the rolls. Big Supreme Court case in Ohio that I am paying a lot of attention to, though it is super wonky. Um, your organization is about making it easier for people to vote. So what are the things that you feel the most um, excited about and seem the most promising to you? Are there um, ballot initiatives coming up in November? Is there other work happening? What's the meat and potatoes of access to vote? 
Well, so right it starts with a, with a philosophical difference. It, it's about not seeing voters as criminal suspects, but instead seeing them as customers of the election process, which, yeah. And, and when you do that, you look at policies like they have in Oregon and, and in several other states where, whether it's vote by mail, whether it's automatic voter registration, which we're seeing more states adopt, it's all about recognizing that a chief election official, for instance, has three major responsibilities. The, the first is to make sure that only eligible voters vote, but then those other two are also important, right? They are to make sure every eligible voter gets the opportunity to vote, and then that every eligible voter meets actual convenience in the process. So that's the stuff that I get excited about. What Let America Vote does is we create political consequences for politicians who make it harder to vote. I'm just firmly of the belief that it's, we've come to a point where in America, if you are in elected office and you are making it harder to vote, we should be making it harder for you to get reelected. And, and that's what we do. And so the, the kind of boogeyman of trying to make it harder to vote is voter fraud and this mm -hmm. idea that we have to limit the franchise to prevent people from taking advantage of it who are not eligible to vote. We, there, as I'm sure you know, there was just this amazing, in my view, trial in Kansas yeah. where Chris Kobach, the um, former Secretary of State no, he's, running he's, for governor, he's still the, the Secretary current, of State, yeah, yeah. right? I guess that's he, why I was doing the trial. Yeah, he doesn't show up um, to work much, so I can see where you go. I, I got confused. Uh, the ACLU sued over um, a provision that made it harder for um, people, well, that was trying to require proof of citizenship to vote. So at this trial, um, the ACLU did an extremely thorough job of essentially ripping to shreds the I admit the voter fraud by call you know making it clear that people who in other forums when they were not under oath had talked about it flipping elections that actually they had no evidence of that there are and Kobach has been found in contempt of court um, the judge's findings and opinion and ruling we're still waiting for but um, Assuming that this continues to kind of, this trial resonates as a repudiation of the myth of voter fraud, will that matter in the conversation? Will that change how Republicans, the claims they make about voter fraud, will it change the national debate? Look, they do this because it helps them win elections. You know, you are statistically more likely as an American to be struck by lightning than you are to commit voter impersonation fraud. We, that's a fact. We're in a state where there's never, literally never been a case of voter impersonation fraud reported in the state of Missouri. There's never Sometimes been one. I think of doing it just like to be the one. Because <laughs> I mean, they've but, enforced those laws so well. But, <laughs> but if they were to do a Wisconsin-style photo ID law here, you would disenfranchise about 220,000 registered eligible voters. So we know these things, right? And they know these things too. What we're changing at Let America Vote is two things. One, we're creating political consequences for this to change their behavior. It's the only thing that will. Uh, and I'm talking about Republican elected officials. But the second thing is, at a larger level, we are engaging in the debate about it. And people say to me all the time, they say, haven't voting rights advocates, haven't Democrats, haven't you all been losing this argument for a long time? And I always say, no, we've been failing to participate in it. There's a big difference. What we've really done here is we've said, okay, Jeff Sessions is in charge of the Department of Justice, which means they're switching sides in all of these cases. Donald Trump's appointing the judges. And so what that means is we have to expand the argument beyond the court of law and into the court of public opinion. Court of law is still deeply important in this, but what we have to do now is we have to engage in the court of public opinion as well. What's the, outside of this issue, what's the big Democrat, what's the idea at the center of the Democratic Party for you? For me, it is all about making it so that every American hometown is a place where you can find success without moving away if you don't want to. And, and I... Th 
Um, and I think particularly here in the Midwest and, and in, in some other parts of the country, that's something that we think about a lot. Uh, you know, my son's four and a half, and I think he's going to be pretty surprised to find out when he goes to college that I'm going to go with him. Um, because they, they don't like that. Uh, yeah. Well, but I say that to say that I really think, even putting politics aside for a moment, I think that what occupies a lot of our thinking as Americans when we think about our culture, all of us, I think we want four things for our family. I think we want our family to be happy, to be healthy, to be safe, and to be nearby. And I do think it's important that as a party we speak a little more often to the nearby element. Because I think, and well, to all four elements, but I think particularly where we need to make sure we're, we're doing a good job and we al haven't always, is that, is that part about nearby? Because when you think about the things we stand for, all of them are really about making it so that you can have success without having to move away. Now, some people are going to choose to move to another town. That's okay. But I just want to make it where people don't have to move away. And, so what, and does that mean? Are, what does that mean when, it, when it's at home? So I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, you take uh, college affordability. People have, they look at that issue and they think of it often as an issue that affects millennials and, and kind of just exclusively millennials. But I've been to every county in this state. I've now been to 39 states in the last year and a half. I've met an awful lot of people who it's affecting their family financially across the generations. And I've met a ton of people who want to return to the town where they grew up but they can't afford to because the wages there are not high enough and they've got an average of $28,000 in debt coming out of school. So what that means is when you think about what is, what is really hurting small towns, for instance, in Missouri and across the Midwest, a lot of the time it's because people go away to school and they can't afford to come back and it's just hollowing out towns across the country. So that's just one example of an issue where it's really about hometowns and we don't necessarily think of it that way. So Jason, you, you've been to 39 states. Who is the politician you've come across outside of Missouri who has you most excited? Um, let's see. I'll name me a couple. Um, my friend Stacey Abrams is running for governor in Georgia right now. Uh, Law school uh, classmate of mine. Good choice. All right. She's a classmate? All right. She's one of the three smartest humans I've ever met in my life. I mean, she's just amazing. Um, let's see. Uh, my friend... Uh, Dan Feehan, uh, who I served with in the Army, is, is uh, running for Congress in, in Minnesota. Uh, so now I'm just naming my friends, but I'll tell you. <laughs> but, but they both excite me a great deal. Somebody who um, I've gotten to know uh, decently well in the last year or so and I'm imminently impressed with is, is Joe Kennedy. You said outside the state, right? Yeah, outside. Right, I know, otherwise, you'd be gonna, like, oh, you know, Claire McCaskill, I'm just going to use this as an excuse to talk about my friend Claire McCaskill yep. otherwise. But good. <laughs> so, actually... Just to talk about Missouri for one second. So Missouri historically has been treated as its own as a kind of mini America with liberal cities on its coasts, as it were, and a, and a conservative rural heart. Um, but that, if you're a Democrat and you look at that, that's not going very well. This is a state that has historically been sort of mixed, but has basically become more or less a red state, although your governor is doing his best <laughs> to perhaps move it away from that. But when you, as a Democrat, look at this, is there a way to make a state which is as rural as Missouri is and as central and, and as Missouri is more democratic? I think that the most important way to win an argument is to make the argument. And I think that doesn't matter where you are in the country. And I mean, I did it. I, I keynoted uh, the Democratic dinner in Utah. There were like 400 people there. I mean, there's, there's energy all over the country right now. And what it comes down to is recognizing that 
Like for me, I'm a Democrat because I think that what we want to do is better for every American, every American family. I don't think it's like, well, you know, there's some people who wouldn't do that well. No, I actually think everybody. I think whether you're from the city or the country, black, white, rich, poor, man, woman, gay, straight, I think what we want to do is, is better for you. And if people believe that, which I think they do, we have to unapologetically make that argument. But what that means is being able to relate what we believe in, not change what we believe in, not, not change our values, not change the, the policy, but be able to really articulate for folks how it's going to affect things in their daily life. So for instance, during my campaign, uh, you know, there'd be, I'd be at a Planned Parenthood event maybe here in, in St. Louis, and I'd be, yeah, and, I, and maybe I would talk about equal pay, right, as part of that event, right? But then if I'm three hours south of here or three hours west of here and I'm in a rural area and I'm in a room full of middle-class men, I'm still going to talk about equal pay. But I'm going to tell them that, hey, if your wife is going to work and she's making less money than a guy doing the exact same job, you both have less money to send your kid to college. So, yes, I believe that our argument flies absolutely everywhere. Uh, but the key part is we've got to be willing to make our argument. What, what people, just to finish an already long answer, what people want they're not looking for you to agree with them on everything. Folks will forgive you uh, for you know, believing something they don't believe. They need to know that you honestly believe it and you believe it because you care about them. And if you accomplish that, you're going to convince a lot of people. So for better or worse, the Democratic Party is often defined by its representatives in Washington. Score them on their ability to make the kind of argument you just made in the jobs they do. <laughs> Uh, well, on a scale of one to two, John, I'd give him a two. <laughs> I don't know if you know, but I'm a politician. Yeah. <laughs> uh, excellent. So if we could move out of the shallow end of the pool. Um, uh, but, you know, because that's, I mean, one of the things you're talking about is making the argument. Mm-hmm. And that means you've got to have an argument. This is part of the reason that I go around the country talking about this idea of focusing on hometowns, focusing on how stuff affects people in their everyday lives. And I haven't yet to meet anybody who experiences issues one at a time. We talk about them one at a time. We experience them as, as just living life. Like I think it's really important that people be able to relate. That It's why my... Here's a slight plug. It's why my podcast, Majority 54, it's why... <laughs> It's why we focus on actual individual stories of people who are impacted by issues in their everyday life. Because the key to convincing people of things, like if if you want to convince your Republican aunt of some things you believe in, you can't just come at them with the stats you read in the paper. you got to say a couple of things. One, it's either, let me tell you about a person I know about, a story I heard, let me tell you about their experience and how it moved me. Or even better, let me tell you about what's gone on in my life that has led me to believe this. Politics is far more introspective than, than we realize. You've got to look inside yourself, figure out why you believe what you believe, and then take people on your journey. And yeah, I think we can do a much better job of that. So is there a politician, or is there a writer, or is there a, is there a touchstone for you? Is there a book with lots of underlining and marginalia mm-hmm. that, that this grows out of? Um, or is it look, just all those states? I think like a lot of people in my generation, I'm even in ways I don't always give voice to, I think I'm influenced by President Obama. Um, and so I can't point to a thing he said that led me to that, but, I'm, but I think if I'm being honest, I think that that's a big part of it. But for me, 
Look, when I ran for state representative in, in 08 in Kansas City, I knocked on 20,000 doors myself. I, I met everybody. That's how I won. So those, every one of those conversations informed the way I see things. And then after that, you know, hit just about every county fair I could when I ran for secretary of state, hit every county when I ran for the U.S. Senate. Now I've been to 39 states. And if you go all the way back before that, really probably the most formative part is, look, I grew up, I grew up real comfortable. There was nobody who could make a decision who was taking food off my family's table, which means I got into my mid-20s before I had to live in any way feeling the wake of politics, and I was in the back seat of an unarmored vehicle in Afghanistan. And that's not a hard luck story. That's I got into my mid-20s before I knew what it felt like to be on the receiving end of bad political decisions. And that, probably more than anything, made me absorb all those conversations I had at doors and at fairs differently and realize that it is about how stuff plays out in everyday lives. It's, there are real stakes here. It's not, it's not just a game, you know? Jason Kander. Thank you. Do you think for his next race, he'll do an ad where he puts together Ikea furniture blindfolded? That would, that would play well in, in Maryland, in the suburbs of Maryland, for sure. I don't know, but every no- door he now do- knocks on, people are going to be like, oh, great, we've got one of those. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this bookcase is cattywampus. We need a little... Uh, he's going to have to walk around with like a pocket full of Allen wrenches. <laughs> Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, And Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. The state of the American political sex scandal has never been stronger. (laughs) Republican Congressman Tim Murphy resigned for urging his mistress to get an abortion. Another Republican congressman went down after offering $5 million to one of his staffers to bear his child. (laughs) Donald Trump paid off at least one porn star for her silence about their affair and still did not manage to silence the other 13 women who accused him of sexual assaults and other sexual insults. Anthony Weiner went to jail. Al Franken groped and resigned. Roy Moore preyed on children, nearly won a Senate race. And you, dear Missouri, you are once again a bellwether, for there is no sex scandal more repellent than the one you have foisted on the world. It is oddly undercovered outside of your state for reasons that we may get into, Um, but the sex and blackmail scandal enveloping Governor Eric Greitens, the Rhodes Scholar, Navy SEAL, is extraordinary even by the high standards of today. As I do not need to tell you, he is accused of having an affair with his hairdresser, of photographing her without her consent while naked, threatening to expose her if she made the affair public. I would say he takes your motto of show me uh, (laughs) quite literally. 
Uh, don't He's also accused of having coerced her into sex and assaulted her. Yeah. The accusations against Greitens are very credible as a bipartisan bipartisan group of state legislators have found his accuser credible and, and given weight to her accusations. Um, but he remains governor and has the support of more than half of Republicans in Missouri at the moment. So we want to talk not in great detail about the Greitens scandal, about which you know much more than we do, but about the state of the American political sex scandal and the evolution of it and where the Greitens case fits in. So, um, John, you were, you were one of America's great political American historians. So, what careful. choice do you have? So careful do you think, or i go back to, you know... You know, we have, you know, Wilbur Mills, Gary Hart, Bill Clinton, Newt Gingrich, Bob Livingston, Denny Hastert, Mark Foley, David Vitter, Elliot Spitzer, Wiener, John Edwards... There are a lot uh, of women's names on that list. There's so many women on that list. On that list. So many women. Do you think there are ebbs and do, do you think there's anything going on right now that's different in the Me Too era with political sex scandals? To the extent that we've seen the Me Too move through corporations and media and um, all kinds of other places in a really big and powerful way um, in politics. Actually, if the Me Too movement were as successful in politics as it has been in corporations and media, then you would expect actually some of these people to be out of office. More, I mean, but the, but the problem, and we'll get to this, is obviously political allegiance and wagon circling is what's protecting in some of these cases. Uh, particularly for, I mean, it's one of the things that the Republican Party has to wrestle with is the, um, and I'll, I'll just read you a quote from from a Republican politician during the during the Clinton years, is it has to wrestle with a, with a history of having said this. If you and I fall into bad moral habits, we can harm our families, our employers, and our friends. The President of the United States can incinerate the planet. Seriously, the very idea that we ought to have less than the same moral demands placed on the chief executive that we place on our next-door neighbor is ludicrous and dangerous. So the argument there was that, that there's a higher moral standard for the President and that that is a direct relationship between our safety and that moral standard. So that's a quote from Mike Pence. Um, well played. Um, and I think, it's, I, I think it's very interesting, and maybe we can have that conversation about, you know, I believe a lot in forgiveness and humility and the fallen nature of all of us. And, but you can either embrace that or you can embrace the idea that if you don't live up to a standard that you would expect for yourself, that it's a direct relationship between that and our national security or just fitness for office um, or that the character of the president informs the character of the nation. If you held all those previous views, you're talking about fundamental moral principles. To just chuck them is, you can't just do that. You've got to have an answer for why and, and that's something that there's not a very good answer for. One thing that strikes me about this scandal, so forgive me if I'm wrong, this is your state, not mine, but it seems like there are many Republicans in the legislature and certainly your attorney general who would also like Governor Greitens to take himself off stage. Um, And that's not happening, which is kind of remarkable um, and seems to me to reflect something about the meaning of shame. You know, I believe in innocent until proven guilty, and Greitens has not been found guilty in a court of law. But usually when you have credible accusations and you have a bipartisan legislative committee that um, describes the accusations in that matter, you have managed to shame someone into leaving office. And this time that's not happening. And that 
has to relate in some way to um, Donald Trump's kind of genius for not letting shame get his way. It's so weird, though. I mean, you think the 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 politicians who've been in, caught up in sex scandals who have survived them ha, and brazened them out have it's generally there's been it's been transactional. So David Vitter famously was caught up in a prostitution scandal in Louisiana. He remained a senator. Is he still a senator? Maybe, he, but he remained a senator from Louisiana for a long time, basically because they didn't want to lose that seat. And so Republicans just said, you know what, we're going to hold our nose and keep that guy in office. There's no reason to keep Greitens in office. He's done. He's not going to be president anymore. There's no chance he's going to be president. And if he, if, he, if he resigns, there's still going to be a Republican, as I understand, a Republican lieutenant governor who's going to replace him. So I just, it, it, to me, is in, in the kind of game theory of it all, I, mean, I don't get it. It is so, true that he hasn't had his trial yet. So. Also, in the fight, if you cut bait on somebody in your team... You are penalized by your voters in certain in certain areas. You know, and certainly in the conversation, it gets very quickly to forget about the facts of the case, but uh, think about the other t- team. And giving them a win is not. We don't want to do that. So that's the thing you'll be penalized for. So that leads you to to not go against the you know leader of your political party. I mean, the other thing is that I mean that certainly was the case with a lot of the support for President Clinton. We come back to this over and over again. I mean, are we doomed because Democrats didn't grapple with Clinton, Bill Clinton, in the way they needed to? I mean, are we, we are be- we eternally doomed to 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 not solving this because Republicans can always point to saying, "Well, whatever our guy did, your guy was much worse than he was president." We can't be eternally doomed, right? I mean, I do think that feminists, in particular, have a lot of um, you know reckoning to do over Clinton, and we've had some of that in the Me Too era, and that was like necessary and justified and there is a way in which as long as you know people remember what happened with Clinton it will seem like oh it's all very well now um that it's not your guy but um but politics are the the world is changing and the fact that more women are willing to come forward the fact that these allegations are public these are the kinds of allegations that would have seemed too shameful to the alleged victim to share a few years ago so in i i hope that we're not forever doomed or that democrats are not forever doomed just to have this be something that um one would hope that this would not always be this politically polarized tribal conversation in which you you know accuse the prosecutor of having partisan motives. And I do think the fact that there's been bipartisan condemnation here matters for that, um, for that part of the story. John, do you think, um, as, a, as a student of political sex scandals, do you think run-of-the-mill <laughs> do you think no. run-of-the-mill adultery even matters anymore? I mean, do you, do, do you well, have to, this- do you have to commit some other crime? Besides adultery, right. for yeah, anyone to care. Edwin Edwards, uh, you know, I have to be caught with a... Well, the love child part adds a little. But, right, maybe you should have to do something more than have a consensual affair to, ha- to, be, to be asked to leave office. Well, that was, you know, when people, during the Clinton years, people say, well, we're all French now, right? Which is, like, basically, we have a kind of continental view about the elasticity of marriage and... You know, every so that it doesn't really matter Except anymore. That now looking back, we see the power imbalance between Clinton right. and Monica Well, that's Lewinsky the key. Making that that's a right. Different. Um, um, you know, if you're weak on the issues, adultery will matter. If you're 100 percent on the issues, it won't. Do, Emily, do you think going back to your original point about there are no women on this list, that this actually becomes a voting issue that people are going to end up electing more women because women are less scummy than men in general? No. 
I mean, that's a nice idea. And I, I mean, the questions of what this, the fact that the list was so entirely, I guess there is that one, someone resigned. Some the national mayor, mayor, of of mayor of Nashville. Yes. Okay. Let's give her a place in the Pantheon. Good job. Um, Good work. Um, Although again, in her case, it wasn't just the adultery. It was that the bodyguard had, had gotten, yeah, that there was yeah. a, there was a malfeasance involved. Right, good point. Um, I don't think that women are going to succeed running for office by saying, I promise not to be that scummy person who, like, assaulted someone. But here, here is one thing that I wonder. Is Leon Panetta, for the, um, when I interviewed him for the Atlantic piece, he said, you know, if you go on the theory that presidents are the response to the previous one, he said the next president will probably be very, very boring. And I think... Um, it's and good I, news for Mike Pence. And I think... <laughs> and I wonder if... Um, you know, there was Carter played... It was, it was really interesting listening to Jimmy Carter talk to Stephen Colbert about... He said, you know, I used to think the key to the presidency was telling them that I wouldn't lie. And when he ran... He said, you know, I will not lie to you. And the part of the Carter package was it was outsider from Washington, of course. But it was also like, you know, he was a buttoned up guy, had this amazing, still does, amazing relationship with his wife. I wonder if while we might say we're all French now, there will be symbolic and the next presidential candidates will play up that symbolism as a way to play on some of those old themes about, you know, the traditional marriage and all of that descend you know, kind of subtle cues, or maybe not so subtle, in our next election. So let's go to cocktail chatter. I'm going to take the first chatter, and, and I, I normally don't, but I'm taking it because it's a little bit of a downbeat chatter, so we can go from down, down to up, but worthwhile. So, um, and I may get teary in this, so forgive me in advance. So I was uh, stopped in my tracks this week by a story I read in the Indianapolis Star about an 85-year-old Indiana man named Frank Grunwald, who is a uh, Czech Jew who survived the Holocaust and is still alive. I'm Jewish, so I've heard almost every Holocaust story there is to tell, but not this one. Grunwald and his father, Kurt, survived the war, and they survived concentration camps. They were reunited after the war, and they made a home here in America and led very good lives. But the stories about Grunwald's older brother, John, and his mother, Vilma, um, who were killed in Auschwitz on July 11th, 1944. So John, who was then 11, uh, was at Auschwitz with his mother, and he was limping, and he was unable to work, and so the Nazis picked him out for the gas chambers. And his mother, knowing that her son was going to his death, joined him, just chose to join him, um, because she didn't want him to die alone. And so as she waited online for the trucks that were going to take them, which she knew were going to take them to the gas chambers, she scribbled a note to her husband uh, on cheap paper and pencil, and she asked one of the Nazi guards to deliver it, and miraculously, he apparently did deliver it. Her husband, Kurt, was a camp doctor elsewhere in Auschwitz, and that status was keeping him alive. So the guard delivered the note to Kurt, he kept the note, and then he gave it to his son Frank after they reunited after the war, and Frank from 1946 until today, essentially would read that note to himself privately every few months. Um, His father, Kurt, died in 1967. In the 1990s, Frank finally showed this note to his family, the rest of his family, and four years ago, he donated it to the Holocaust Museum. And this letter is remarkable in two ways. First of all, it's remarkable for what it is, which it is the only document 
that was written by someone going to their death in one of the concentration camps that survived. A resident who they knew they knew that she was going to her death. It's the only the only such document that survived, which is amazing when you think of all the millions of people killed. And then what I think is more remarkable is for what it says and for what Vilma called to mind as in the last minutes before her own death and the death of her son and the love and blessing she passed on to her husband. So let me read it to you. So this is the note, which is here. It was written in Czech. So this is obviously a translation. You, uh, this is to her husband, you, my only one, dearest, in isolation, we are waiting for darkness. We considered the possibility of hiding, but decided not to do it since we felt it would be hopeless. The famous trucks are already here, and we are waiting for it to begin. I am completely calm. You, my only and dearest one, do not blame yourself for what happened. It was our destiny. We did what we could. Stay healthy and remember my words that time will heal, if not completely, then at least partially. Take care of the little golden boy, and don't spoil him too much with your love. Both of you stay healthy, my dear ones. I will be thinking of you and Misa, Frank. Have a fabulous life. We must board the trucks. Into eternity, Vilma. So that's my chatter. Emily, what's, sorry to make you follow that. What's your chatter? Um, I can't believe I have to follow that. All right, let's switch moods here. Okay, there are seven justices on the Florida Supreme Court. You may recall that the Florida Supreme Court has like had some key moments um, in recent American history. Um, at the moment, there are three justices who must retire by midnight, January 7th, 2019. That's because there's a law in um, Florida that if you're turning 70, you have to retire by the end of the year. So they have to retire from the court. The Florida Supreme Court happens to be divided four to three liberals to conservatives. All three of the justices who are leaving the court are liberals. Governor Wright. So in play is the control of the Florida Supreme Court. Governor Rick Scott will be out of office at midnight on January 7th, 2019. But there is a big question about who will appoint the successors for these justices. At the stroke of midnight, they will be gone, and maybe Rick Scott will still be the governor at the stroke of midnight. So he is claiming that he has the power to make these appointments. Um, this is an unresolved question in Florida law. The last time this happened, um, where someone had to retire, a justice had to retire, coinciding with the end of a governor's term, um, the two governors involved, who were Jeb Bush and Lawton and Childs, Childs, agreed to jointly appoint someone to clear up any confusion over whose power this was. But this time, it doesn't it appear... It not seem to clear up any confusion. They just chose to boot the confusion They booted down the it. They didn't resolve it, but they didn't have a crisis. So the League of Florida Voters, and I think another organization, has sued to ask the Florida Supreme Court itself to resolve this question about who has the power to replace these justices. The Florida Supreme Court has so far said, sorry, this hasn't actually happened yet, so we can't adjudicate this. It's a problem of ripeness if for the lawyers out there. It's not ripe, they have said. So here's the real kicker of this like state constitutional crisis. In order for the Florida Supreme Court to make a ruling, they have to have a quorum of five justices. <laughs> So they have a real math problem. 
on January 7th, 2019. It's going to be fascinating to see how exactly it gets resolved. What? Actually, Emily, just a, you may not know the answer, but if a Supreme Court is unable to make a decision which requires a decision, what happens? Is it, does, it, does the legislature, does it go to the legislature? Can, can it go to the U.S. Supreme Court or no? It can't go to the U.S. Supreme Court? I don't know how. It's a matter of state law about, like, I'm not sure what the mechanism is. Some, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. There seems to, there's a problem with a state question of state law power becoming a federal question for the federal courts. There's also a problem with it going to a different branch of government. What about a lower court? Who gives them the authority? Who's gonna t who gets to say, hey, Florida Appeals Court, this is your hot potato now? John, what is your chatter? I am befogged by that uh, conundrum. Okay, let's, let's have some fun with Walter Chauncey Camp. That's who this fellow is. For our, uh, for our audio listeners, what we're, what we're looking at on the screen here is basically somebody who looks like the Monopoly Man. <laughs> who has eaten the car on the Monopoly board. <laughs> anyway, that is uh, Walter Chauncey Camp, um, who I discovered when I was working on a whistle stop about Dwight Eisenhower, who had played golf a lot, and I came across Camp. So this is a picture of him. Um, he is known as the father of American football. He, throughout his life, had a series. You, can, you can't really see his mustache there, but he really had a, a minor in mustache both wear and preparation. Um, and I was first interested in him about something we'll get to in a second, but I, what fascinated me is, okay, so he's the father of American football, and he was responsible for all of these innovations in the game of football, but his life, and what I'm about to talk about, we talk a lot about norms and standards on the um, podcast, and we think about it a lot with respect to politics, and, and his life and who he was and what I'm about to tell became a kind of... He was basically like the, the exercise coach for the nation and also the sort of moral uh, exemplar for kids, for young boy, young men, and who they should turn out to be. And so he had in his autobiography, there's um, his life and his lesson was, um, was wrapped up in this thing called the sportsmanship brotherhood. Plays the game for his sides, keeps the rules, keeps a stout heart in defeat, keeps faith with his comrades, keeps himself fit, keeps his temper, keeps modest in victory, keeps a sound soul, a clean mind, and a healthy body. Here is a description of him in his biography to give you some sense of what a national figure he was. He, he looks only like a national figure in the sense that he, he was as big as the nation. But nevertheless, <laughs> he was a... Um, uh, this is from his, um, his biography. This man surely said to himself in boyhood, as most boys have said before him, I have only one life to lead, and I want to get out of it as much fun and as many rewards as I can. No one who ever looked Walter Camp in the face can forget those eyes. Men with eyes like that are rare, and they indicate a spirit that commands other men. So how did he command other men? Well, he was a football coach at Yale. He won the national championships in 88, 91, and 92. That's 1888, 1891. <laughs> In 1892, perhaps the last time Yale won a national championship. I'm happy to be proved. I'm happy to be proved wrong. <laughs> I mean, unless you're booing Yale's football team, which I don't think is very nice. Uh, here is we're celebrating the great Coach Camp. His record at Yale More was recently 60, than Missouri, I think. 67 to two. 
So he was very successful. Some of his innovations, including the line of scrimmage and, the, and using a set of downs. But that wasn't what made him famous and made him such a national and international um, uh, figure. He created something called the Daily Dozen, which was, as far as I can tell, the first national exercise craze. And he created the Daily Dozen because mankind was becoming, he said, caged creatures, even though we do not see the bars that imprison us. And the Daily Dozen was supposed to uh, be a substitute for the normal activities of mankind in the primitive state. The Daily Dozen were 12 exercises called the grind, the grasp, the crawl, the crouch, the rotate, the revolve, the roll, the weave, the wave, and the wing. These are a variety of, basically, as near as I can tell, a lot of arm seven movements. Seven-minute workout? It was, exactly. It's the seven-minute workout. So I don't know if any of you have done the seven-minute workout, but like people are, a lot of people are doing seven. He is the original seven-minute workout. But here's the thing about what was happening in America at the time. Here are some of the things that the various exercises are supposed to help you with. The grasp relieves constipation and headache, relieves eye strain, and equalizes weight. So then the grate helps deepen chest cavity, but then you go to the crawl, tends to correct constipation. And a, and well, you a, want to double cover that And one. a tortured liver. And a tortured liver. But it turns out it's not just double cover. The crouch helps constipation, prevents, <laughs> prevents flat feet. The weave relieves biliousness, constipation, <laughs> and a sluggish liver. You know, that liver was just moving along lickety-split, but it's gotten sluggish. <laughs> then, after you've done the weave, number 10, number 11 is the wave, and you know what it does? <laughs> Constipation. And it stimulates the liver. <laughs> and then, just because they run out of synonyms for constipation, number 12, the wing, improves circulation and wind. <laughs> So apparently, America was so bound up in the... No wonder he was a national hero. The Daily Dozen was not just some trifle. It became the uh, Army and the Navy had this as the Daily Calisthenics. And then Woodrow Wilson, now can we have the next slide, invited him to the White House. This is Wilson's cabinet. <laughs> this is the moment just before they sprinted to the privy. <laughs> now, uh, next, next picture, please. Now, it seems to me in this picture, one of the ways they've fat, uh, fought the Battle of the Bulge is they're just all wearing their pants under their armpits. <laughs> but I don't know if you can tell who the gentleman second from the end on the right is. But that is uh, FDR. Uh, obviously, before he was stricken. Oh, um, yeah. In the front row. In the front row, yeah. Wow. Not in the black trousers. Who do you think the dude in the back right, though? He's got... <laughs> he's got some... mutton chops. <laughs> <laughs> that guy's liver has not moved since... <laughs> since the 19th century. <laughs> That's it. So... Uh, <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> That's our show for today. The Political Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Izzy Road. Faith Smith put this show together. Thank you to the Sheldon Concert Hall and to the good people of St. Louis for hosting us. We should... 
follow us on Twitter at at SlateGabFest. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and Jason Kander, I'm David Watts. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.